through the years, and so I'm glad to be here with you today. Uh, our scripture text today for the sermon is Malachi chapter 2. We're going to begin reading in verse 17, the end of the chapter. We're going to read through chapter 3, verse 5. Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, through chapter 3, verse 5. And in just a moment, I'll pray, and then we'll read this text. But I want to set it up for you a little bit for those of you who have not uh, been walking through Malachi, who, who may not be quite as familiar with this text, uh, Malachi is the last of the writing prophets in the Old Testament. That means that Malachi is a post-exilic prophet. He ministered somewhere around the times, the ministries of Ezra and Nehemiah, after the people had returned, after the temple foundation had been laid, before the walls had been rebuilt, while the people are still languishing with the nations around them. Uh, this is a bit of a, uh, a book written to people uh, who are in a bit of a spiritual malaise. They're back in the land, but it's not what they thought it might be. God wasn't showing up in the ways that they expected, and they're looking for God to do something. Uh, this book also is divided into a series of disputations, almost disagreements we could think of as we walk through. Uh, we find the first disagreement, and you'll see this, this response where the Lord says, you people are doing this, or you people are saying this, and they respond to the Lord by saying, what are you talking about? Uh, chapter 1, verse 2, I've loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Chapter 1, verse 6, you priests despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? Chapter 2, verse 13, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping, with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand, but you say, why does he not? And today we'll be looking at the fourth disagreement between God and his covenant people, uh, where the Lord says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. So Malachi chapter 2, beginning to read in verse 17. Before we read this text together, please join me in a word of prayer. Let's pray. O gracious God and King, this is your word and we are your people. And so we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would so unite us to yourself that you would use this word as a living and sharp-edged sword to divide us, to show us our great need for you, so that you would bind us together by the work of your Spirit. Gracious Father, conform us to the image of your Son. Help us to see more of him. Help us to see the anticipation of the one who was to come, and then to see the one who did indeed come, uh, who was uh, put to death for our salvation, raised again for our justification, who now sits at the right hand of the Father. Uh, give us, O Lord, access to your throne of grace through him and by your Spirit. Help us to see and read these words to the edification of our souls, and to the glory of your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hear now God's word as we find it in Malachi chapter 2, beginning to read in verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. 
Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Well, thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. I wonder if uh, you have ever gotten something that you wanted desperately wanted, only to find out that what you wanted wasn't quite what you were ready for. That's the experience of most new parents, at least at first. You spend those nine months before your first child is born dreaming and anticipating what it will be like to hold your own little bundle of giggles, but nothing you have seen in anybody else's family, nothing anybody else can tell you about parenthood adequately prepares you for the reality of having your own child. Sometimes it's far better than you expected. Sometimes there are those quiet moments and you're sitting in the rocking chair and she's drifting off to sleep and you think this is far better than I ever imagined. And there are those not so quiet moments. Those moments where you begin wondering, what in the world have we gotten ourselves into? Those moments when you begin frantically strategizing, how can I make it through the next 20 years with this tiny screaming person? Maybe it was your experience with the job that you always wanted. The job that you trained for, the job that you studied to get. You you spent four years in undergrad and uh, and then a master's on top of that. And you finally landed the position in that company that you thought would be the perfect fit. And six months into that job, sitting in your own personal office, you look up one day and you think to yourself, is this really what I was hoping for? Well, the major tension in this section of Malachi seems to be the problem of unmet expectations. Judah, God's people, thought that life as his people should be different somehow, maybe better somehow. They thought there were still some wrinkles in the way that the world works that God ought to have ironed out by now. And what they thought they wanted was for God just to show up and to fix everything already. That's what they expected. And the Lord says that he's going to do just that. He's coming. He's going to appear. But when he appears, it won't be what they expected. Now, in our English Standard Bibles, if you have an ESV in front of you, you'll notice uh, that our text is divided into three paragraphs. Uh, That's a very helpful division. We're going to follow that division today as we look at these verses in terms of sin and grace and judgment. Sin and grace and in judgment. And so first in verse 17, that first paragraph, the Lord exposes the sin of distrust. Now the Lord says the people are saying wearisome words. 
They're making accusations against the God uh, of their covenant, the God who, uh, who they say takes some things seriously and he winks at other things. They're saying blasphemous things about God. They're saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. They're asking questions like, where is the God of justice? They're making accusations against God. And the first thing we have to notice about these accusations is that these statements represent evaluations of God drawn from human experience. They are a bottoms-up view of what the Creator is doing in the world that He has made. Where else could these statements have come from? They certainly didn't come from what God has told us about Himself. When we look in God's word, it tells us that he is holy, that he is just, that he is against those who are workers of iniquity. But the people of Malachi's day are not taking their cues about God from what God had told them about himself. Rather, they're taking their ideas about God and about his priorities according to their own personal experiences. We know that this is the case. We know this is the case because in chapter 3, verse 14, we get a bit more detail about the kinds of things the people are saying. Take a look. Verse 14, this is the Lord again speaking about his people. He says, you have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Do you hear that frustration in their voices? Do you hear that evaluation according to what they can see? They're asking pragmatic questions. What good is it? What's in it for us? What do we get out of this? They're asking, don't we deserve better than what we've received from God's hand? This is the age-old problem of the prosperity of the wicked. Remember, Malachi is ministering to the people post-exile. He is speaking now to people who were children or they were grandchildren of, of their forefathers who told them about the glory days of Israel. The days when the kingdom was still a kingdom. The days when the people in the nation had a sense of self-sufficiency and self-determination and, and self-rule. And they, they were able to do those things that they wanted to and the things that God called them to. And now it felt like all of that was gone. The Jewish kingdom is no longer its own nation. Now it's an occupied province of Persia. Those days of plenty are grinding to a halt. Their once glorious temple has been replaced by a sanctuary so small, so insignificant, that when the foundation was laid, those who remembered the first temple wept to see the smallness of it. It seems like things are not what they expected. We read what they expect today from Proverbs, didn't we? The righteous falls seven times and rises again. It's the wicked who stumble in times of calamity. And they're looking around them, perhaps worse than the state of the kingdom and the state of the temple, is the state of the wicked, those idol worshipers who are all around the nation of Israel. And they seem to be doing far better than those who worship the living God. And things aren't what they expected. So not because of what God has said, but because of what they were seeing, they began to distrust God's goodness. And the Lord tells them that when they do that, they accomplish the impossible. He says they weary the one who cannot be weary. Do you remember Isaiah 40? He does not faint. He does not grow weary, but he says you have wearied the Lord 
with your words. It's interesting to note that in the scriptures, God is never said to be wearied by the prayers of his people. The prayers of God's children, even in times of heartache and hardship, are never a burden to the Lord. He can carry our burdens. And the Psalms are an example of of many such examples where where God's people are crying out, trying to make sense of, of his goodness when things seem difficult. When they're looking at their experiences and saying, God, where are you? How long, O Lord, Psalm 13, will you cast off forever? This isn't what I thought it was going to be. Where are you and when are you going to show up? Why aren't you helping me? The Psalms show us that we can turn to the Lord. With our frustrations and our complaints, we can pour out our petitions to the Lord of covenant faithfulness. But Peter Adam tells us, in one of his commentaries, he says, The God who does not mind when we address our complaints to him is wearied by our complaining about him. Those are two very different things, aren't they? You see, in prayer, even when we have struggles and complaints, even when we have doubts, when we go to the Lord in prayer, we are declaring by that prayer that he is the one who is the answer to our doubts and distrust. By going to him, we are declaring by that action, Lord, you are the one who ought to be in control. You are the one who ought to be answering. You are the one who decides what is true and good and just and right. We may not yet see how he answers. We may not yet understand how he's working all things together for good. But when we make our prayers to the Lord, we're saying that he can be trusted. Now, when we speak our complaints about God, especially to one another, what we do is we put God and his righteousness on trial. That's really the sin at the heart of what was going on in Malachi's day. The people had already made up their minds about what God is doing. They're not wrestling with the Lord in prayer. They are declaring, we have tried the Lord and we have found him wanting. When they ask, where is the God of justice? What they are saying is, our standard of justice is better than God's standard of justice. If God was as just as we are just, he would have dealt with this by now. And so they are... Uh, Not just engaging in a sin of doubt or of disbelief or of slow flinching unbelief. It is a sin of distrust. It is a rejection of God's right to rule the creation that he has made. And God says this is a sin that he finds burdensome, a weariness to deal with it. It is the same cynicism that Jesus confronted during his earthly ministry. You remember Jesus' words, Matthew chapter 17, verse 17. O faithless, twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? Do you hear that weariness in our Savior's voice? It's the same sin that Paul warns us about in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. He tells us not to let any corrupting talk come out of our mouths. And then he immediately adds, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit, he says. Do not weary the Lord by your words. There is a distrust that is a burden to our Lord. 
And that distrust, that sin takes root. Anytime we evaluate God's goodness from the ground up, anytime we allow our sinful expectations about God and his justice to outpace our approach to him in humble prayer. And so we see this this sin of distrust, but how does the Lord deal with the unrealistic expectations of his people? His answer, I think, is far more gracious than they could have hoped. So, chapter 3, the Lord reveals the grace of cleansing. It's our second point, the grace of cleansing. The people wondered when God was going to show up already. When God was going to take sin seriously. You know, the way that, that they took sin seriously. They wondered when he would show up for justice. And in response, God is promising a personal appearance. Take a look at verse 1. Behold... I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, when you read that, first blush, it could be a little confusing. It almost seems as though the Lord is speaking of three separate people, two messengers and one Lord. But notice the parallel language uh, between the Lord and the messenger of the covenant, Uh, The Lord there is called the one whom you seek. The messenger of the covenant is the one in whom they delight. In both cases, the Lord and the messenger is one who comes, but that first messenger is one who is sent. And so those little hints help us to see that actually those second two individuals are the same person. It's one person spoken of in two ways. This messenger of the covenant is also the Lord himself. The word there, the name there is not Yahweh, as we might expect. That's why it doesn't show up in capital letters, but the name is Adonai. It's a, it's a title for God in the Old Testament. The one who rules, the one who reigns, it is God spoken of as king over his people. And God says when he comes, he's going to show up in the temple that belongs to him. And he's going to come to rule and to reign and to bring justice for his people. And wasn't that exactly what they thought they wanted? Here they are surrounded by these pagans, these these idol worshipers. Here they are surrounded by, uh, by these idolaters. And would that God would just show up and deal with those scoundrels and cast them down. And then God's people would be able to serve him in gladness and freedom. They could live in peace. But isn't it often the case that our expectations of God are smaller than they ought to be? Well, the people wanted the Lord to come and change their circumstances. Often he does, you know. That's why we we prayed together before the sermon. That's why we had that long list of circumstances that we cry out to the Lord. Lord, will you please change this? Lord, will you please act in what we're going through? Lord, will you show up in my life? Lord, will you work through my children? God often does change our circumstances. He cares about what we're experiencing. But if that's all we think God cares about, our expectations of his concerns are far too small. God's concern goes deeper than our outward experiences. And so God promises first a messenger. One, he says, who is not the Lord himself, but one who comes to prepare the way before him. Isaiah 40, again, uh, picks up that same picture. And you know there, it it describes this this forerunner, this herald who will come before the Lord. And it pictures, as it often happened in those days when a, a king or a dignitary was coming, that they would make the path straight. 
So Isaiah says every valley will be lifted up, every hill will be brought low, this beautiful new tarmac laid out, this super highway for the Lord coming to visit his people. It's the same picture that we find in Malachi chapter 3. And we don't need to wonder who this messenger was or or when this prophecy was accomplished because Jesus uh, applies it in the New Testament to John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 11, beginning uh, to read in verse 7, says, As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see, he asked, a reed shaken by the wind, a man dressed in soft clothing. What did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, and he will prepare the way before you. Jesus tells us John is this messenger from Malachi chapter 3. And when these words show up on our Savior's lips, it reveals at least two very important things that we need to know about this text. First, it reveals the kind of preparation that God had in mind for his people. The kind of preparation he had in mind wasn't about infrastructure. It wasn't literally about roads and highways and getting outward things ready. God's preparation was was about hearts that were ready to receive him by repentance. So you remember that if there is any word that describes John the Baptist and his ministry, it is repentance. He went out into the wilderness calling the people to come. He, He preached to them a baptism of repentance. He told them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He told them that every tree that does not bear these good fruits will be cast into the fire. John the Baptist had a singular passion. He had a single message. The message was prepare the way of the Lord. Repent, 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 John said. And so when Jesus connects John's ministry to Malachi, he's showing us the kinds of blessings that God has in mind. He's not just speaking to people who are expecting outward circumstances to change. He's speaking grace to people who thought that the best thing God could do was to change what they were experiencing. And he's telling them, your expectation is far too small. And so this prophecy tells us something important about John, tells us something about God's work through him. Secondly, this prophecy tells us something very important about Jesus himself. John was the herald, of course. John went out first to prepare the way for God's coming. But when Jesus showed up, John no longer did that preparatory work. When Jesus showed up, John receded into the background. He said, there he is. There's the one whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. There's the one who has to increase while I decrease. There is the one, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That was something that John could not do. He went out into the wilderness and he preached repentance and repentance. He told the people of the sinfulness of sin, but he couldn't lift a single finger to save the people who came and heard him. John wasn't the one to cleanse the people of God, but Jesus was. And so he pointed to him. And that means that when Jesus said that John was the messenger who came first, Jesus is also declaring that he is the Lord who comes second. And you know what that means, don't you? It means don't believe the hype. It means don't believe those critics 
and those scholars who, who would like to tell you, you know, Jesus never actually claimed in the New Testament that he was uh, the divine son of God. It means don't believe those books that seem to arrive on the bestseller list every five years or so telling us that, uh, well, the doctrine of the divinity of Christ was a myth that got blown out of proportion, and over the centuries it became something that it was never intended to be, of course. Here we have Jesus in the New Testament saying, John is the forerunner, and if John is the forerunner, I am the Lord. Jesus is telling us who he is. Behold, he's coming, says Malachi. The Son is coming into the world. His name will be Adonai. It will be Kurios. It will be Christ and Messiah. And he is God in the flesh. And in Malachi chapter 3, we find out that when the Son comes into the world, he's going to do this careful and deliberate work of purifying his people from their sins. Verse 2, he is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and like silver. It's more gracious than the people had a right to expect, isn't it? Here they are breathing out accusation and blasphemy against their God. God doesn't care about righteousness. You can get away with whatever you want, they're saying. Making accusations against God. And we expect almost for the Lord to show up and to smite them. We expect that it's time for the exile again. Back to Babylon with you. Let's try this again. You haven't learned your lesson, have you? But instead of condemning his people with a word, the Lord tells them that he's going to come. And when he comes, he's going to treat them as something precious. Something worth preserving. Don't miss the blessing in these verses. We know this picture of a refiner's fire, don't we? And it sounds almost like punishment. It sounds painful. The same is true of of the fuller's soap. They didn't have soap as we think of it uh, now. They had lye. A caustic solution that you would, uh, you would plunge your garments that were stained into the lye and, and it, would, it would begin to burn away the organic material of, uh, of, of the stain that was in it, but also of the garment. And so you couldn't leave it in too long because it was this, uh, this caustic sort of eating away. And it was, it was, if we could imagine being ourselves the garment, it is this painful image almost like being the silver or the gold that's being refined. And it sounds like pain. It it sounds like punishment. And the fire speaks of burning off the impurities of God's people. But notice that the intent is deliverance rather than destruction. Now, the image of the refiner's fire is familiar for us. If you've you've been around the Bible a time or two, and it also uh, has in common a, a few features of some of the other pictures we find of God shaping and and purifying His people. And so we read God's word, and we find that the Lord is like the potter. The potter molds the clay as as he sees fit. We read his word, and we find that God is like the vine dresser, and he prunes us so that we would become more productive. We read God's word, and we find that he's like a loving father, and he disciplines us, but he disciplines us like children who actually belong to the family. We read God's word, and we find that our Savior is the bridegroom who washes and cleanses his bride to present her to himself. But in order to do all those things, it means that the weeds have to be pulled up. 
It means that the stains have to be scrubbed out. It means that the dross has to be melted away in God's furnace. The image here, you know, is, is of affliction. It's of suffering and, and hardship and those outward circumstances that God uses in the lives of his people to strip away all those other things that we lean on, all those, those other saviors that we're tempted to trust in so that we would to learn that, that God cares far more deeply about us than merely delivering us from outward difficulty. And on the other side of those refining fires, we find that, that God's work is going to be seen in a people who are made pleasing in his sight. So verse 1, we saw that uh, the Lord declares that he's coming. Verses 2 and 3, he tells us about the work that he's going to do. But verse 4, he shows us the result of his cleaning grace in his people. It says, Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. And that seems like a a small thing from where you're reading. Consider the fact that this is the answer to just about every problem that the prophet has raised so far in this book. I won't rehash the entire message for you. You can read it for yourself. I hope you will this afternoon. It'll, it'll take you 10 minutes, 15 minutes if you read slowly like I do to read through Malachi. But you'll see there that over and over again in the prophet Malachi, the problem that is the hallmark that points out people in rebellion to their God is broken relationship and broken worship. He began in chapter 1, telling his people that I've loved you, but they were, they were so far gone they couldn't even see his love. He went on to speak to the priests and to the Levites and telling them that, that they're polluting the altar by the very offerings that they're bringing. He goes on to speak of those who are engaged in unlawful marriage and unlawful divorce by telling them, you may be weeping and groaning over the altar of the Lord, but you're polluting it by your offerings and your sin-stained hands. Over and over and over again in Malachi, not the, the root issue, but the main symptom that shows up is broken worship. And that broken worship is pointing to a far deeper diagnosis. Hearts and souls that are full of sin and iniquity and rebellion against the Lord. But now God is saying that he's going to do away with that. He's going to refine the priests. He's going to cleanse the people. He's going to remove the sin that stains their souls. And he's going to make even their worship pleasing to him. This is unmistakably the ministry of Jesus for his church. Yes, it's true that, that he refines us by those, those sufferings that we go through. Yes, it's true that, uh, that our Savior progressively sanctifies his bride by that ongoing internal work uh, of the Holy Spirit within her. But think for a minute that, uh, that if God had not made us acceptable to himself in the first place, all those other incremental changes, all those little uh, hash marks by which we, we step ahead, just one step after another, all of those incremental changes would be for nothing. Think about it. So what? If when you became a Christian, you became a bit more kind, a bit more loving, a bit more forgiving, so what if when you sat down and read your Bible each morning, you came away with a few more wise words? A few more comforting thoughts to share with the people around you. 
Could you imagine what you would have if you received all the outward daily virtues of the Christian life and yet you were not made first acceptable and pleasing in the sight of God? Can you imagine what you would be able to claim, what you would have if in the words of Paul you had all knowledge and all insight and all faith to move mountains yet you couldn't stand before the Lord and be accepted? What would be left? What blessing could you claim if God said, you know what, I'm going to make you pure, but I'm not going to make you pleasing. I'm going to cleanse you, but I'm not going to make you acceptable. What would you have left? But our Lord doesn't work by half measures. He sent his son to purify his people in order that they should be presented to him in holiness. That means that he deals with more than just the outer garment. It means that he works from the inside out when he purifies his people. So the New Testament tells us that for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It does not say that he made us to become a a blank slate, tabula rasa. He sets us back at square one so that we can work out the rest of it by our own righteousness. That's not what it says. He made him to be sin so that we become the righteousness of God. In other words, God cleanses his people not only by affliction and by suffering, but by atonement. He cleanses his people by a sacrifice made and offered up in their place. That's why when John the Baptist came to prepare the way, he pointed to Jesus. He identified the messenger of the covenant and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of Of the world. He comes like a refiner's fire. He comes like fuller's soap. And when God sends his son into the world, the Lord says, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they can be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they may become like wool. Your friends, I know many of you in this church, but not all of you. And if you're here today and you have never been washed clean by Jesus, if your sins have never been cleansed through faith, you can receive that today. I'm not speaking only to the adults, but to the young ones as well, to the children, to the young people. If you've never closed with Christ, if you've never cried out and and asked for the forgiveness of your sins, you may receive that today. Call upon him. Believe in him. That he's the sacrifice who has given up for your sins. That he's the one who was raised for your salvation. Only believe in him. Only ask. And he will make you white as snow. Pleasing in his sight. As tempting as it is to end on that note, there is another word for God's people in this passage. And so in the face of the sin of distrust, God promised the grace of cleansing. In the person of Jesus, God is going to show up and he's going to deal with the sins of his people in a way far better than we ever could imagine. But he also warns that for those who do not fear the Lord, his coming is going to be far worse than we could have expected. So verse 5, the Lord speaks the promise of judgment. The promise of judgment. Verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. 
there are two questions I think we need to ask of this verse. The first question is, upon whom does this judgment fall? And the second question is, when will this judgment come? So upon whom does this judgment fall? And the answer is, it falls upon sinners of every kind imaginable. We're often tempted to think of sin in terms of categories, right? Nice, neat little boxes where we can put those things that we, we think of in God's word that, that conform to this kind of sin or, or that kind of sin. We have a kind of taxonomy of, of transgression in our mind, and it ranges from the heinous to the overlookable. And we place ourselves somewhere along that sliding scale, depending on the categories of sins that we're engaging in. And you know the kinds of sins that we're talking about, those familiar categories that we have in our minds. There are sexual sins, and there are religious sins, and there are social sins, and there are moral sins. There's a sense in which verse 5 shows us some of the familiar categories that we're used to. It points those out. But, but we need to know that one of the reasons we so often think of sin in terms of categories rather than specifics is that it makes it easier for us to dismiss the sins that we see in ourselves. If we can mentally package up a certain type of moral defect and we can associate it with some group that doesn't look like we look, well, we find it easier to convince ourselves that we don't have a problem with sin the way that other people do. There's a word for that, by the way. It's called hypocrisy. And so two men went up to the temple to pray, and one of them said, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector here. You hear it, don't you? The Pharisee prayed in categories, neat little boxes of defects that didn't apply to him. They only applied to those people out there. But how often do we read that passage and we quietly think to ourselves, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like that Pharisee. Our God cuts through all of that. It means that verse 5 is a direct answer to the desire that his people expressed in verse 17. Where is the God of justice, they asked. The Hebrew word is mishpat. Justice. It's the same word that shows up in verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for mishpat. You want justice? The Lord asks. Is that really what you're expecting? Do you want unbridled judgment against sin? Do you really believe that where it falls will leave you untouched? But justice falls on all kinds of sinners. And when the Lord comes in judgment, those who deal in perversion will be just as guilty as the sinner who takes advantage of the refugee and the immigrant and denies them resources and recourse to justice. When the Lord shows up in judgment, the liar will be just as guilty as the thief. That's what God says. Be a swift witness against the adulterer and against those who thrust aside the sojourner. He will bring judgment on those who swear falsely and on those who oppress the widow. And it means that God is not impressed by our categorization of sins. He's not thrown off the trail by our attempts to say that, you know, our problem isn't as bad as other people's problems because our problem doesn't look like other people's problems. When the Lord comes in judgment, the only question is, do you fear him? 
Do you trust him and his judgment of the world? Or do you hope that when he comes, he will wink at your kind of wickedness and not at somebody else's? And so the first question, who will receive judgment when the Lord appears? The answer is all kinds. Big fat sinners and little white liars, everybody in between. Everyone who refuses to trust in the cleansing Christ who came in the name of the Father. Now there's a second question, verse 5. The question is, when will this judgment come? This question's a bit trickier than the first one. The simplistic approach to explain this is to say that Well, when Jesus came the first time, he came for the salvation of his people. And when he comes the second time, then he'll come for judgment of the ungodly. There's some truth in that. He comes as the rider on the white horse, and and he comes to to wage war against the sinners of the earth. And there is some truth to that, but, but I think a far better way to understand it is to realize that when Jesus came in the flesh the first time, he began a process of salvation and judgment simultaneously that run together until the end of days. This is exactly what John the Baptist said about Jesus and his ministry. Luke chapter 3, verse 17. He said his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. It happens at the same time, you hear. This is Jesus' witness about his own ministry. John chapter 3, verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You see, Jesus came as a refiner, as fuller soap and a cleansing fire. He came with a ministry of separation. And right now, this very moment, As God's word is being preached, that ministry of separation is continuing. And the wheat is being gathered and the chaff is being prepared. The goats are being gathered together and the sheep are being corralled in his pen. Right now, as the word is being preached, those who believe are being saved and those who do not believe are being condemned already. And when he returns, that process will be all but over. When does it happen? It's happening already. That means that the only question that remains to be asked is what are you expecting on that day? Are you expecting to escape judgment because your sin looks cleaner than the sin of the person sitting next to you? Are you expecting that when God returns in judgment, his judgment will be skewed to let a few in who who he maybe just looks at and says, don't worry about that. We'll we'll just let you pass. It'll be okay. I'm going to pay attention to them. I'm not going to think about you and your sin. Is that what you're expecting? Are you expecting God's justice to be impartial like our justice is impartial? Oh, we can justify anything that we do. But if somebody sins against us, oh, we come down hard, don't we? Are you expecting that God's judgment will be like that? Or... Do you expect that on that day when God comes to judge the secrets of men, that Christ will be better than you could ever imagine? Do you expect that he has done for you what you could never do for yourself? Do you expect that when he says he will wash you clean, make your sins as white as snow, that he actually means it? 
Do you take him at his word rather than uh, taking him at what you can see? Do you trust in what he has told you? Do you believe in him and his word that he's given you? Do you believe in the son that he sent into the world to cleanse his bride and to present them to himself? That is the only expectation in this life that will never let you down. You can expect many other people to do many other things that they've told you, but circumstances get in the way. I'll be there at 3 o'clock, but the tire goes flat. I'll love you for the rest of my life, but then something happens and the relationship goes sour. If many expectations of other people in the world, the only one that will never let us down is when we expect that God will bring the salvation he's promised in Christ Jesus. And so, dear friends, if Christ is your hope for the day of judgment, you will find, as his people always do, that his grace is far better than you ever could have imagined. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious and righteous, glorious Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son who comes to clean and to purify. We thank you for the sacrifice that he gave on our behalf. We do pray that all those who hear your word here today would believe in you, would trust in you. Those who are young and maybe those who are visiting, we pray that you would give them faith in the Lord Jesus Christ Give them eternal life in your name. The Lord, God's seal stands bearing this word that the Lord knows those who are his. As your dividing word goes forth, we pray that you would gather your sheep to yourself. Gather your flock and purify your bride. Make us pleasing and acceptable to you.